Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, it's a slogan, a manifesto promise, definitely an aspiration, and now it's got its own government department and minister. But what exactly is levelling up? A new IFG paper has trawled through the many statements this government has made about levelling up and done the number crunching on all the spending promises so far, and its author is with us today. She spotted some contradictions and has some questions for the government. We're also going to look ahead to a big row in Parliament next week when the uplift of £20 a week to universal credit allowances expires. And so what pressure does that put on Chancellor Rishi Sunak? After that, we'll turn our attention to Brighton and the Labour Party conference, like the others returning in person this year. What kind of pressure is Labour leader Keir Starmer under? Joining me today is IFG Senior Fellow, Kath Haddon. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you here. And I'm delighted that we're also joined today by Arj Singh, Deputy Political Editor at the iPaper. Hi, Arj. Hello. Great to have you here. Are you looking forward to getting back on the party conference circuit? (laughs) Good question. Um, In some ways, yes, it will be good to get back after a year off. But um, if you ask me at the end of the season, I might have a different opinion when all I want to do is sleep. Yeah, we're we're wondering whether they completely have changed. Uh, you know, people have gone off drink or making up for lost time or whatever. We will see when they actually start. Okay, let's turn our attention to levelling up because that's where the government's attention is right now too, with Michael Gove taking over the newly named Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. A new department, sort of, a new minister, and a push to turn the slogan into reality. Well, making her podcast debut today is IFG researcher Eleanor Shearer. Big welcome to you, Eleanor. Hi, Bronwyn. Great. You're the author of our new report into levelling up. Getting its own department, does it mean anything? I mean, it was quite a surprise to see the the departmental rebrand, not just because we don't really have a clear definition of levelling up yet, as we argue in the paper, but also because if we do know anything about levelling up, it's that the government has a wide range of objectives here from everything from infrastructure to health inequality. And so having a dedicated department for something that's very cross-departmental is quite an interesting move and it's definitely one to watch and how all the pieces fit together and the different departments are able to coordinate as we go forward. You made I mean, a couple of really important points there, which we'll, we'll come back to. Kath, just on this sort of branding mm. question, is this a full-blown change in the architecture of government or is it just putting a stamp, a new name on one to say, we really care about this? Well, in terms of the the name going on to the department, it is kind of a weird one because it's um you know it's a it's a slogan effectively rather than the piece of government that uh, the department's looking into. So calling it leveling up is a, is a strange one. But yes, the department is going through a machinery of government change. There are parts of the cabinet office that we know are going into this new department, not just those dealing with aspects of the union. So, you know, parts of the cabinet office dealing with the uh, devolved administrations, but also wider parts of the cabinet office that dealt with the constitution more generally. So things to do with elections, how our, ca- our constitution works. So there's a lot of the cabinet office that is now going into this super department. But I mean, the big question that comes down to this policy is, this is a traditionally an English department looking at, you know, local government communities, housing and so forth, that is now going to be looking at the whole of the UK. So what that's going to feel like is, is the big question we're, we're waiting a really good point, because, of course, Michael Gove also has responsibility for the union. Mm. By very definition, is not just English. Arj, we, we were talking last week on last week's podcast about Michael Gove and whether he'd got a promotion or demotion um, or something in between. What do you make of this move? Has he been given a really big job, what the government says is its top priority, or has he been given Mission Impossible? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely a promotion. If you look at it, 
he's been put in charge of the government's kind of key plank of its domestic policy agenda in levelling up. Talk to the experts and they compare levelling up to the redistribution between East and West Germany, which took decades. So it's high risk politically for the government to stake its reputation on this and it's potentially high risk for Michael Gove if he can't deliver. That said, I think he's probably been moved to tackle some more immediate problems as well. The planning reforms that the government was unable to get through in the face of a Tory rebellion, I expect he'll be turning to that first, as well as the cladding crisis and the crisis for leaseholders who are unable to sell their homes due to fire safety regulations and and the fact that they're on the hook for for some of the remedial works. But yeah, levelling up is... I suspect the government won't want to define it too clearly with goals that are too clearly defined because it is so wide. I actually interviewed Neil O'Brien, who's producing the levelling up white paper, which we're expecting possibly next month around the spending review. I interviewed him a couple of years ago um, when I was at the Yorkshire Post, and he talked then about rebalancing the country, and none of them are are short-term measures. He's talked about boosting the performance of low-performing schools in the north, boosting private sector growth in places like this, creating higher skilled jobs and stopping the conveyor belt of young people moving away from towns to big cities like London. But he did talk about things which you can do in the short term, such as improving housing, improving rail links and other infrastructure, and more science and innovation funding for these areas. So those could be easy wins for Gove and his department. As you said, I mean, governments, countries have been trying to do this for years and years, and many governments in the UK have been trying to do versions of this. Eleanor Arge just mentioned, which you did at the beginning as well, that this isn't really very defined. Just take us into that a bit, what you've uh, argued in the report about what we know and what we don't know. Yeah, so in the report, we point out a couple of things are clear, not least the fact that there are, this isn't just about economic outcomes. It's about education. It's about health. It's about infrastructure. But three areas stood out to us as being in need of more definition and clarity. So one is about whether the government is trying to target low output areas, so areas that have lower economic output compared to somewhere like London, or is it actually about helping the people that are most in need, whether those people happen to live in Tower Hamlets in London or in Hartlepool. Um, And then the second thing is that Sometimes the government talks as if it wants regional cities to play a big role in driving productivity growth, but at other times policy is focused a lot more on towns. So there needs to be more clarity about what the priorities are there. And finally, we look at the question of decentralising power. The government talks a lot about it and is trying to move civil servants out of London, which is something the IFG has written about before. But a lot of the policies used so far, particularly things like the uh, funds, the towns fund, the levelling up fund that involve places bidding for money from central government, that means that central government is still largely controlling where funding goes and what it gets spent on. So there's a bit of a tension there between what the government's saying about wanting to empower local communities and what it's actually doing so far in terms of policy. That's really interesting. Does it matter if it's defined or not? I mean, as Arj was saying, it was, uh, I, think, uh, I don't think I'm misquoting you, Arj, uh, that, that it, the government may well not want to define exactly it is, perhaps because then we can then measure it and say whether or not it's it's got there. But does it does it matter? We think it does matter because with something that is, as I said before, so cross-departmental, there's a real risk that 
you have different departments pursuing different incoherent policies and your time and attention and money is spread too thinly to really see success in any of the areas that the government wants to tackle. So although there obviously are costs to defining metrics for success in terms of then possibly not meeting those metrics, the advantage is that everyone can be more coordinated and we actually think you're probably more likely to see measurable improvements if you do actually try and define this a bit more clearly than the government has done so far. Really interesting. And you've gone in quite a bit in this report into the sums of money that the government has already definitely pledged. So some of the things that we know uh, really firmly. Can you just take us into the numbers a bit? Yeah, so we we draw out a few of the flagship policies in the paper. You've got £4.8 billion for the levelling up funds. That's going to cover the whole of the UK. You've then got £3.6 billion for the Towns Fund, which only covers England. And then £2.5 billion also for the National Skills Fund to fund more adult skills training. But I think the thing that's important to remember is although we draw out a few specific policies in the paper, this really is going to involve a lot of day-to-day departmental spending. And with the spending review coming up, it's another reason why it should be an urgent priority for Michael Gove in his new role to really set out what this looks like in practice. Because as you're negotiating the settlements for departments, you really need to know what the money is going towards and what your priorities are to make a success of the spending review. And do we know whether it is going to electorally useful places for the government. This is one of the big challenges when people are sceptical of the government's claims. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning the attention between whether it's going to places or to people, regardless of where they are. Do we have a sense of, of you know, where it's going? So we do. The Leveling Up Fund and the Towns Fund both do involve a kind of prioritisation of places according to a number of different metrics. And in the paper and in some separate analysis we're publishing alongside it, we've gone into detail about the way that those funds rank places. And I think on the Leveling Up Fund, the measures that are used are quantitative and they're sort of policy choices rather than something that's necessarily political or kind of pork barrel politics. So although we point out in the paper that you get a different sort of a ranking if you swap out the measure of economic output, GVA, for income deprivation. You see more urban areas like Hounslow, near Heathrow, rising up the rankings, and you see more rural areas like Richmondshire, Rishi Sunak's constituency falling. But I think it's still a defensible choice to make to say we want to prioritise one over the other. Our critique is just that the government is not really making explicit that prioritisation. However, in the Towns Fund, I think there is a bit more cause for concern. So the way that the Towns Fund worked is it did this ranking of places, but then our ministers got to go away and pick the final 101 towns that were then eligible to apply for these town deals and get this funding. And our analysis there does show that, particularly for the places that were in the original ranking deemed medium and lower priority, ministers tended to go for towns in those uh, categories that were in Tory held parliamentary constituencies. So that fund is more open to criticisms of possible political bias. All right. So we, uh, more of a sign that you can see the delicate hand of politics in play. Arj, what do you make of this? Is it uh, politically useful for the, the government? Uh, is it a strong platform for the government to argue that it's changing the country on? Or is it a hostage to people's disappointment? No, I think there are there are two aspects to this which we've kind of been touched on. One is the two funds that Eleanor was just talking about, the Leveling Up Fund and the Towns Fund. And those basically see money going into areas that a lot of them are 
now Tory held seats or, you know, will be Tory Labour marginals in the next election. And it allows the sitting Tory MP or the challenger of Labour in those seats to put something on their leaflets that says, look, we're doing something for the area. The Tories are doing something for the area that Labour have never done. You've been ignored by Labour. And that's the feeling, I think, among many voters in those areas. And then there's the longer term aspect of it, which is really turning around the deep seated inequalities, regional inequalities. And that that will take some time, but it's also quite tricky, I think, to attack the government for not sorting that sort of thing out straight away. So if they can make progress in those areas while also you know, delivering, you know, shorter term stuff that might not song- solve the long term problem out, it, it it could be a powerful, powerful brew for them. And Kath, what do you reckon about the value of this for the for the government, the political value, if you like? Is, is this what the next election is going to be fought on? Well, in a sense, the government are gearing it up for that by, you know, um, making it sort of a very large but comprehensive or rather in an issue that isn't easy to identify and pin down. They're creating the sort of political salience of the topic. You know, people, the phrase levelling up is is everywhere in British politics. You know, we expect the government to keep talking about it again and again. So they're very much putting it in people's minds. The issue is going to be whether or not the public then start to associate either improvements or failures in improvements in their area or in their lives with that policy and start to say, well, you haven't done it for me or you have done it for me. And and that's why this sort of balance about how they're targeting either regions or, you know, parts of the electorate or, or particular groups of people or whatever is really crucial. And and also about how they manage the narrative about what progress they're making, because, you know, an issue like this, as, as both Arj and Eleanor were saying at the beginning, doesn't fit in with an electoral cycle. It takes years and years to actually make meaningful change. So it's not as easy as just making sure that you can get just... Um, you can get some real progress by the time of the next election. So it's it's partly how they sell it. It's a very difficult thing because it sounds measurable. Yeah. Level up, everyone can measure whether something is level or not. Um, and yet, in a way, it, it, it seems to be a conservative way of talking about inequality, but building in a lot of aspiration for improving chances. Yeah, but I think also it's going to come down to a sense of how much people feel involved with this as well. There's another phrase that's done the rounds quite a lot, which is, you know, you can't level up by um, from the top down. So it's a big question about local government has gone out of the title of this department. How much uh, will local governments, will city mayors, how much are we going to level up politically as well, which is obviously a big part of also the devolved agenda alongside some of these economic and other inequality debates that we're having. And that could also be part of it because there's a bit of a tension going on around the country with the the different levels of government that we've got. Well, well, that's fascinating. We do know there are a lot of people in in Whitehall, in the Cabinet Office and uh, in in the new department and elsewhere working on on this, um, whether or not we can measure it. So we'll come back to all those things. There's going to be a lot of talk about this. Uh, Eleanor, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for the great report. Okay, let's turn our attention then to a subject the government really doesn't want to talk much about, and that's universal credit. In particular, this question of the temporary £20 a week uplift brought in by the Chancellor during 
the coronavirus pandemic, and now it says about to expire, be withdrawn. We're joined now by Nick Timmins, IFG Senior Fellow, distinguished author of books and articles about public services and all the thinking behind them. Nick, thanks for being with us. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Just tell us in short, what is the temporary uplift? Uh, Well, as part of the many measures to support people during the pandemic, uh, there was a £20 a week or a £1,000 a year increase in universal credit uh, as the pandemic took effect, uh, and also in tax credits, which uh, are the in-work benefit for which which are in-work benefit for that still remains, but it's being transferred across into UC over time. Uh, and that's a, that was a significant increase. I mean, for single people and childless couples, it's one of the biggest increases that there's been in donkey's years. So it made a big difference. And so what has government said about what's happening now? Uh, it has said it's going to end it um, at the uh, beginning of next month. Uh, having extended it once, it was originally brought in for six months up to April. And it's now it was then extended again uh, until October, beginning of October. And current policy is that it will end. And of course, the problem for the government in part is that if you make a pretty generous increase in benefit and then withdraw it, you appear to be making a pretty big cut as well. It's probably also worth saying that it's tougher now than it was, than it would have been if they'd ended it in April in the sense that we are seeing gas prices going up and shooting up. Food inflation is rising. Uh, Other forms of inflation appear to be rising. Uh, And uh, none of that was the case back in April at the end of the first six-month period. And, of course, although this will only affect a minority of people on UC, come April, there's going to be tax increases, national insurance increase and freeze in tax allowances. Mm -hmm. So the cut is coming at a time when budgets are going to be under pressure. And how many people does it affect? Uh, Well, it it, it affects about more than 4 million households. Is there a case for keeping it? Well, there's certainly plenty of people making the case for keeping it on the on the grounds that um, I mean benefit levels, out of work benefit levels in this in this country are relatively low by international standards. And this is this is the point you've made consistently in your writing for us that, that our welfare standards are not high internationally. They're not. They're not. Um, I mean, we pay a lower rates of tax, but we have lower 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 welfare levels of, of welfare payment, uh, and they're particularly tough for single people and for childless couples, where successive governments have taken the view that they should really be in work. So the benefit levels are mean as an incentive to get into work. And then you've mentioned other things like the tough winter coming, the, the gas prices, inflation on, on many fronts at all. Do you get any sign that the government might use some of these as um, as reason to have a fudge? Uh, for example, inflation saying, look, um, actually inflation is worse than we thought. Okay, we won't take all of it away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's not really been any sign so far that I've seen other than ministers saying it's going to acknowledging it's going to be a very tough winter and um, nobody quite answering the question saying, yes, we're absolutely going to do this. But all this, all the current policy is that it is that the, is that it will happen. I mean, they do. You know, there are alternatives. I mean, they, they could. I mean, you know, for instance, they could freeze the 20 pounds element and keep it, but freeze it. It was interesting with in April when they there was the original increase twenty pound increase in tax credits, and what they did there was end the twenty pound increase but pay a five hundred pound lump sum, which is the equivalent of six months of twenty pounds a week as a one off so you ease the pain by making a one off payment while getting rid of it for the longer run um or they could 
phase it down in some other way, or possibly they could get rid of the £20, but use some of the money to make other changes to universal credit, for example, reducing the taper rate so that people don't have the benefit withdrawn as quickly when their earnings rise. So there are a bunch of things they could do. Uh, The question is whether they will actually decide to do any of them. Which depends partly on the pressure that's on them to change, and maybe they haven't made up their minds yet. Arj, what do you think about the pressure that's building on them? Marcus Rashford's spoken out on this, Labour's pushing on it, actually a bit less hard than I would have thought. Yes, the, the pressure has been building for some time. It was almost a shame this week that the, the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, spared the PM's blushes and, and denied us a vote on a, on a Tory rebel amendment on universal credit so we could see just how serious the backbench Tory rebellion is on this. But, I mean, those those who are, are opposed to the cut on Tory backbenchers think they have the numbers to possibly defeat the government. That said, those on the backbenches who are are against uh, scrapping the uplift do believe they have the numbers to defeat the government. Two of the most prominent Tory metro mayors in Andy Street uh, in our paper and Ben Houchen in The Sun today have now spoken out against the cut. And I thought Kwasi Kwarteng, interestingly, repeatedly hinted at cabinet tensions on this issue. And I think it's a fairly open secret that the DWP ministers are not happy with this. That said, number 10 and number 11 look totally united at the moment in opposing the continuation of the uplift, and they're so far standing firm. Um, It was perhaps not a great look, though, when the PM in America completely dismissed any concerns about cost of living this week. There There were shades of Jim Callaghan returning from Guadeloupe and crisis what crisis when you had front pages full of stories about energy bills going up and, and the gas price crisis. But I think Kwarteng as well hinted this week that there are discussions going on about how to help people with the cost of living, and that might be around energy bills. I wouldn't be surprised if we see something around the extension of the warm homes discount or winter fuel allowance or something like that, possibly in the budget next month. I just think it's not done yet. But perhaps the continuation of the uplift as it is at the moment isn't going to happen. I thought it was interesting that uh, Nick said you could take the money and use it to do other things with the universal credit, such as uh, tinkering with the taper rate to, to ensure that being in work pays more. That sort of thing could be being discussed behind closed doors and, and would get the support of many of the Tory backbenchers that are against this as well. Because remember, 40% of UC claimants are in work and that would fit with the government's message of we're now focused on jobs and getting people back into work after the pandemic. It's really interesting the way you describe it, that the the main pressure on this, the most troublesome pressure for the government is coming from its own backbenchers and indeed within the cabinet and all Labour has to do at this point is really say, uh, look, we're against against this cut. Kath, is this a... A crucial moment. We're two years into this government, probably two years away from the next election. How how troublesome is this kind of moment? I think it is because it's it's somewhat defining where the Conservative Party sit on a lot of these issues. I mean, um, I just talked about a, a lot of the different people who've come out against it. Another one is Ian Duncan Smith, the former leader. 
architect of universal credit and also his special advisor who helped him devise the scheme in the first place, both of whom have stressed the numbers of people that could be forced into poverty by this or, you know, without any other changes. And then that alongside, uh, as Arj has mentioned, all the, the worries about the cost of energy, potential longer term impacts on rising energy prices onto the consumer there. It all adds, starts to add up to concerns about cost of living. And that's what the Conservatives seem to be starting to talk about is, is this going to become, you know, a, a bigger issue during the course of this parliament that more and more people are really struggling with cost of living and that that increases as also, you know, an important issue unto itself, but also starts to increase as an important issue around the time of the next election. So it is one of those moments of they need to think about, um, you know, what the impact of all of their policies are doing together uh, onto people and, and, you know, how that's going to affect the, the stuff we were talking about earlier about inequality and how to fix it. Yeah. Nick, do you agree? Uh, yes, I mean it's 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 clearly a building issue, isn't it? And um, you know, you were talking earlier about leveling up, and if you produce a policy which sees a lot more people, you know, f- fall into poverty, that hardly fits with a leveling up agenda, does it? So it is it is tough stuff for the government. Yeah, and, and this cut. Sorry, if I can cut in. Um, this cut hits those kind of red wall seats that the government is looking to level up hardest. I think there were some studies. Uh, towards the end of uh, last year or early this year that showed that precisely those areas that the government wants to level up are that's where the people are that are hit the worst by this cut and that obviously depresses economies in those areas as well because people have less money to spend. Nick what do you think is going to happen we've got this month and a few days till the budget and spending review do you think there's the likely to be the kind of change that you and Arj have been talking about? I, I, I have no idea precisely what will happen at all but the combination of the gas prices and the cut to UC means, I suspect, as I think Arj does, that something will happen around this. But whether the something amounts to keeping the £20 or keeping much of the cost of the £20 or whether it is simply that they take the £20 away and try and do something about gas prices, I don't know. But there's a clear sense that something somewhere is going to give at least to a degree. Well, thanks very much indeed for that. And we've got, I guess, not long to wait and the heat likely to rise over this. Thanks very much for joining us, Nick. Pleasure. Okay, well, let's swing around to our third topic, that extraordinary phenomenon of party conferences, but back in person this time. And so all those things, the seaside, the warm white wine, beer, networking, business cards, all going to be back. And we're heading down to them. This weekend, the Labour Party is heading to Brighton. Arj, what kind of pressure is on Keir Starmer as he looks ahead to the big speech he's going to give next week? Yeah, it's being billed as a make or break conference for Keir Starmer, but aren't all conferences for opposition leaders make or break unless they're surging? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that said, it, it, it is a big moment. I think Starmer does finally need to put some meat on the bones of his offer or the public will simply stop listening to him. Um, We've had the 14,000 word essay setting out his kind of ideological approach. I have to confess I haven't read it in full. The Guardian's described it as a a pitch for the centre ground. And I just wonder if he's done that to roll a pitch for some potentially big moves on policy. Um, A shadow cabinet minister told me a week or two ago that we're not going to be disappointed by 
by the policy offer at conference. Good to know. Good to know. Um, the, the big screed that he has published uh, now it, it, it is a warm up, if you like, is, is talking about contribution to society or even, you know, the contribution society. Is this going to be the flavour of what we hear? Good question. I mean, I mean, that that does seem to be a key part of it. Um, I think there were other elements around empowering local communities. That seems to be a big part of what uh, Keir Starmer wants to do. And I thought there was an interesting reference to the private sector as well that just signalled a shift, a shift he wants to continue away from the left. And and this fight he's picked with the left in the in the rooms of the conference over changing the leadership rules back to the electoral college. So basically changing the rules away from what Ed Miliband changed them to, which then allowed Jeremy Corbyn to get elected, back to the old system, which he probably hopes ensures the likes of Jeremy Corbyn don't don't get the leadership again. He, he's picked this fight on the eve of the conference, and I think that's interesting because that's another important thing that I think he needs to show in this conference, that this isn't the same Labour as it was under Jeremy Corbyn. And also where he's positioning himself in relation to the unions, who are not going to like that that change or support it. What do you may what do we know about some of the things that he may say, other than in that uh, business of the um leadership rules, some people say, look, he looks remarkably like Ed Miliband, a lot about energy, a lot about markets, but very much sort of modified. Do we do we have a much of a sense of what's going to come out? You'd expect Labour to go big on the cost of living crisis that is coming down the track this this weekend. We could have an Ed Miliband style, I think it was twenty thirteen when he uh, announced the Labour plans for an energy bill cap. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something else on, on cost of living. But even on universal credit, I think Shadow Working Pension Secretary Johnny Reynolds has made clear that Labour wouldn't continue the uplift in the long term. So, And Keir Starmer has talked about balancing the public finances in his essay. So it'll be interesting to see actually how hard they can go on that while backing it up with policy. Yeah. Kath, what can Labour do to grab the spotlight? It's been an incredibly difficult 18 months for them, hasn't it? Yeah, and it, it's very interesting given the, the point we're at and everything we've been talking about today, especially that, you know, all-encompassing slogan, levelling up. I mean, it's worth remembering Labour had that in their manifesto as well. But when you've got a government that's sort of out there trying to define it and getting it into people's minds, it's hard for Labour to just follow and say, well, yeah, we'd do that as well. So they've got to try and carve out not only what they would do that are things that the public want them to be, do, you know, talking about, but also differentiate themselves and say why the government could never do this, but we are the ones that you need to be able to do it. And that's really hard at the moment because, um, you know, Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, his Conservative Party have done a good job of capturing lots of different parts of the agenda. He's obviously trying to also tackle the party. One member, one vote is kind of, I don't know how much he's trying to set up a battle to try and look strong or how much he's just trying to get the change through. So it's interesting tactics to sort of build up a fight, an internal fight when, you know, that's possibly one of the things that turns off the public is seeing party infighting. So, but the other thing to 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 remember is that actually it's not always about one part, or one particular conference. With Blair through the nineteen nineties, yes, the ninety five um, conference was very important for removing clause four on public ownership. But actually, it was consistency in terms of the stage managing and looking competent 
at successive party conferences because most of the public don't really watch it. So it's it's going to also be presentational and it's going to be about the sort of consistency coming out of it. And it's going to be about how much of a civil war this particular conference leaves them in, given the last one was um, that they had a big one in person was on the eve of the 2019 election. So big moment for him. That's really interesting. And it's, it's good you remind us of that history and actually just how revolutionary Tony Blair looked for making the party, you know, wear suits, sometimes ties, all look, all look the same on the stage, applaud each other, you know, it, it looked coherent. Exactly. And it wasn't just him. I mean, if you remember back to the 2000s, it was May in 2002 who came up with this speech about the Conservatives being in danger of being the nasty party. And that was a pivotal moment that then Cameron built on. And again, he did similarly. He, um, you know, came out, he would he would bring his wife up onto stage again. It was all very choreographed to sort of make them look as if this was a changed Conservative party. So there's going to be a lot about how that works and also how the rest of the shadow cabinets, you know, perform form on all, all those fronts as well. Absolutely. With all the uncertainty of lockdown, and <laughs> never mind what people are wearing these days, are, are there leadership rivals that Keir Starmer should look out for? Yes. Um, I think that is the kind of subtext to this party conference. Um, it'll be interesting to see how hard some of those shadow cabinet ministers flaunt their leadership credentials at this uh, conference. Angela Rayner had a great PMQs this week against Dominic Raab really gave him a battering and it was probably the last thing Keir Starmer needed before the conference. Um, She is obviously positioning herself um, to take advantage of any slip-ups from Starmer uh, uh, and any challenge to his leadership. But Rachel Reeves has also suddenly started looking like a potential leader in waiting. She gave a great speech responding to the rise in national insurance or the health and social care levy, as, as it's been called. And I don't think she she will be flaunting her leadership ambitions, but it might be difficult for Keir Starmer if suddenly people in his shadow cabinet start suddenly looking like they might be better than him. That's a really good point. And uh, your point about PMQ's Prime Minister's questions are absolutely right. Cass, just your your sense, your kind of cultural divination, if you like, of um, whether things might have changed with this suddenly getting back to the heady business of politics in person. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I get the impression that the Labour conference, there'll be a lot of focus on whether you're vaccinated, use of masks and all that. Conservative conference, I'm not so sure what the, what the rules will be in place and how much we're seeing that difference in the party in the chamber. So how much pandemic is still having an impact on them and um, is going to be interesting. But that's also always the key issue when it comes to conferences is it's not just about what happens uh, on the set pieces that are filmed and, and broadcast. It's also, you know, what's going on um, outside where you've got a lot of uh, fringe events, you've got, um, you know, all sorts of interest groups, businesses and so forth who are showing their wares or, or um, uh, in- engaging with the party in some or other fashion. So I imagine it's going to be a chance for a lot of the decamped Westminster bubble to go and do business elsewhere as it always has been but I think it is going to feel a little bit different this year um, partly because of the impact that you know Covid's had on us all but also because so many of the issues have changed since the, the last time that they really got together on this scale. Well we'll bring all that to you all um, as we go to the party conferences and report back what exactly it has happened there and what it means and what it feels like. But that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Eleanor Shearer, Nick Timmins, and especially to Arj Singh. Brilliant to have you with us today. 
If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There's a bit more leveling up there, in fact, with a recording of our recent event on leveling up or catching up what next for public services. Keep an eye out as well for our Labour Party conference fringe events, lots coming up. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Please do give us a review. I always say that. We really like it. And you can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, including Eleanor's levelling up paper. Well, she's got five main questions for the government about levelling up. I reckon we're going to have a few more in the months to come. See you next week.